With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Noble and Roosh Show hosted by Ball is Life. I'm one of your hosts, Roosh Williams. Zach Noble. We out here. We're in the house today with Seku Smith. Uh, Seku, thank you for joining us, man. How, how is life from the bubble? Appreciate y'all having me, man. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting. I've, I've never spent 10 minutes in jail, let alone <laughs> a night. But this restriction on the human spirit in here is, I understand why everybody was going crazy. Um, you know, that first wave of guys who came down because you're in a room you know, your human instinct is to get up and walk out of it. You know, I got a pool right out in front of me, people splashing around, you know, noise, and you can't do anything. You got a, you got seven days of quarantine <laughs> um, after four and a half months of quarantine at the house. So it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's a gut punch, especially when the, these games are, you know, around the, around the way. You're so close to these games, these fantastic playoff games that are going on, you can only watch them on TV. So I'm trying to trying to keep my mentals intact until I get out of here. On wow. I feel for you. So you literally, right, just got there and you're literally quarantining in your room for seven days. Yep. Everybody who showed up uh, for this next wave in terms of media, whoever is coming into the bubble, you got to quarantine no matter what. Seven days. Seven days. That's insane. As people don't think about that. And like when it comes out of your mouth, it's like, damn. <laughs> it's torture. That's so much respect for you guys for making that decision and doing it. I mean, definitely helping making the, the scene and the product better. I think the more people there, the better. And just the more voices. And it's been definitely fun listening to people's stories. And I think it's helping make the players more at ease, too, wouldn't you say? I think so. I think that the, the environment. And um, I talked to Taylor Rooks from Bleach Report on my podcast yesterday. And she brought up a really good point. Um, she was talking about just seeing players in an environment where it's just them. You know, they don't have to worry about the normal media throng that's always around, fans, you know, whoever. It's just players in this environment. So they've been maybe a little less guarded than normal. Um, and it probably makes for some weird instances when you walk back into the hotel after playing a a game seven, like Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell did, and you got to look at the guy whose season you just ended and you've been, you've been battling with like maniacs for the last, you know, week and a half or whatever. But I do think that uh, the unique setting is something that probably resonates with everybody. Um, I, I've been watching nonstop since the season restarted. So to now be down here and be in the midst of it, um, I'm even more anxious to get into the arena and see the games and see what that atmosphere in there is like. Well, kind of adding on to that, to that element of it, um, just like the awkwardness and how it's kind of an unnatural situation. Uh, the Houston Rockets bounced the Oklahoma City Thunder in game seven, and they are now, from what I can gather, 
the last team in their hotel in their specific you know <laughs> like housing situation so um i don't know I, I don't even know what that would be like i feel like it might be like some some college days type thing you know like they're all in the dorm or something just running it together but um speaking of that uh like you're glowing man you're glowing baby baby like like we like we spoke about the rockets won um don't don't have to go into your bunker don't have to (laughs) don't have to go bury yourself in a sandbox or anything stupid like that (laughs) um but yes i was worried about you there i was really worried so what what are your reactions after that one Look, man, I was so nervous before the game. I mean, Sekou, look, I'm from Houston. Uh, I'm a diehard Rockets fan, have been since the Elijah Wan days. Um, mm. And, you know, after, two, after 2018, there's just been a bitter taste in all, all Rockets fans' mouths because obviously we feel like we could have had it but for, you know, certain circumstances. And so to go through all that and then to trade Chris Paul, the way that it all went down, and I personally think it's just sad the way that Harden and Chris Paul split um, – just as a fan, I just think it's sad because they played great basketball together and they, they did a lot together and they almost took down one of, the, one of the greatest teams of all time. So to lose to Chris Paul would have been heartbreaking, to put it kindly. Um, but they were able to win. They were able to win in an un, uncharacteristic fashion with James Harden making probably the best defensive play of his career, maybe the best you know, single highlight of his career so far. Um, so what were your thoughts on game seven and the series in general? Yeah. Um... I mean, I feel you. I, I, I was covering that that series against the Warriors you're talking about um, when Chris pulled his hamstring and everything changed. I mean, it's it's the nature of this beast that a single moment in any game can change the you know entire course of a series, a season, and really the history of the NBA. Um, you that's interesting that you bring that up though about uh, James, the fact that. He won a series on a defensive play against a guy who somebody told you in October that Lugens Dort might have his hands on a ball that could send the Oklahoma City Thunder past the Rockets and do all that. You'd have laughed at him. You'd been like, Lugens who? Yeah. So, I mean, it, I applaud Harden, and, and I've probably been harder on him than he deserves he, he has improved as a defensive player, just his attention to detail, his effort. And I'm not saying he, he's a defensive player of the year candidate, and I'm not saying he even plays defense like that all the time. But his situational, you know, man-to-man defense, he's taken that challenge on more this season than I've seen since he's been with the Rockets. So I give him credit for that. Um, it's very complex in my opinion because, you know, if you go with the basic take on Twitter, a lot of people are – they're either on one side or the other, right? They're either saying, oh, Harden's a matador in defense or they're a Rockets fan and they're just saying, oh, he's, you know, he's an amazing post defender. You guys are, are overblowing his defensive incapabilities and so on and so forth. But it's complex because he plays so many minutes, right? And that's part of the reason that from what I – because I watch all 82, right? So right. I see him and I can see he conserves – he intentionally conserves himself on defense, which leads to yeah. you know, why, why yeah. he doesn't play defense sometimes. He has the abilities. It's not that he can't play defense. He can move his feet. He's extremely strong. Uh, he's got long arms, good hands, good instincts. It's just a matter of he tries to keep himself out of, first of all, from not getting tired, and second, out of foul trouble. A lot of times he'll let a drive go by just using his body, not using, like, his actual feet. Um, and so he'll, he'll surrender drives. But when he really locks in, he can do it. So it's, it's a dual thing for me because on one hand, it's frustrating. You know, it's like, yo, I wish you could play defense like this more consistently. 
And on the other hand, it's encouraging because it's like, okay, I know you can play defense like this when it counts. So it's, it's something Rockets fans struggle with. Um, another thing about Harden, and I've been one of Harden's staunchest defenders over the years. Uh, Bruce, real, real quick before you get into that point, I got I to say, I've been one of the biggest Harden defense defenders there, there are because I've honestly, over the last five years, I mean, he does. He, it's so complex, and there's so much context needed for this this guy as a, as a player and as a more so as a defender. I mean, he led the league in steals this year. Okay, mm-hmm. um, that that says something. I know stats on defense are, can be overrated at times, and you really got to pick and choose and put them into context and understand them. And when people are dissecting this thing on Twitter, you're right, and social media in general, they're just going for the highlight take, whatever gets them the most clicks, and that's negativity sells so if you're able to point out a flaw and point out something negative about a person yes it's gonna exploit you and you're gonna get a lot of credit and people are gonna love that and I just think Harden it doesn't help that people don't aren't attracted to his personality really and his play style so I've always said he's the most underrated player like of all time because of that because he's so good that he just is hated at the same time based off his personality and play style he just all he does all he wants to do I think is just be as great as he can he comes back and he's better every year and and the defensive side he picks and chooses his battles and that's what we're getting at here when the team needs him to be good he'll guard somebody out on the perimeter if he has to but more so he's way better in the post yes we know that I mean help defense deflection that's where he'd make his all defense bid I would say if he ever did and I and I think he's almost been that good at times the Rockets have been a top 10 top 15 defense and those are the type as long as you got an anchor and a type of player that can lead to those numbers and that I mean that to prove though that you're a top 10 top 15 defense then I think there there you got to pinpoint somebody and that's what backs up all defensive situations they were the number one defense in the first round and that says something. They held the they held the Thunder to three field goals in the last eight twenty-two. When they they need defense, this guy's an all-world defender in my estimation. So, but that is also what makes it frustrating is because you know that they can flip the switch, and as a fan, you're watching them and waiting for the flip to be switched. Now they did they did defend great in the first round. On the other hand, you have to admit Oklahoma City doesn't have the best offense, um, but they did play. I mean, they were. They were tough to, to defend. They had Schroeder was lighting it up. Chris Paul started off slow, and then he got going. But the point I was going to get into uh, that kind of goes in conjunction with that is that the way Houston is structured, Harden shoulders so much of the offensive load, right, that he has to conserve himself. So, so Sekou, I was going to ask you, uh, like I was going to say, I've been one of his staunchest defenders over the years, but this series really gave me, you know, no, no point to argue against that in the clutch – it just kind of seems like he does not want the ball. I mean, I, when, when I was watching game six, if you run the clips back, yeah. he's, he's walking. He's yeah. not calling for it. I mean, at any level of basketball that any of us have ever played, even if we're at 24-hour fitness hooping, you put the hand up. Like, yo, give me the ball. You go get the ball. Yeah. And I didn't see that from him. So what are your thoughts right. on that? You're right. And I think it's funny that for a player who is as great as he's been and will go down in history as being offensively, his, his highlight signature playoff moment to this date is wow. a defensive play. That's crazy. In, in his biggest games where we criticize him for, you know, for not measuring up, it's been piss poor offensive games. 
which is, you know, doesn't make sense. It goes against type. I, I'll say this, and, and I, I hear Zach painting a different picture about his defense. We're, I don't think we're being, those of us who have been critical of James's game in the past, I don't think we're indicting him as a player for being a lousy defender historically. I think we're indicting his effort on defense. We know he's capable. I mean, he's a 6'5", 225, 230-pound dude who's got all the tricks, all the athleticism you could ask for. He's not, it's not like he's some lousy athlete. James is a, is a physical specimen. It's, his, it's been his, a dereliction of his duty as the best player on that team, if you ask me, to not take more of a defensive posture, even if it's for show. And we've had people who are considered great defenders in this league who I would argue were more about the idea and the appearance of playing great defense than they were actually nuts and bolts great position defenders busting it on that end of the floor on a consistent basis. Um, my, my worry with the Rockets wasn't in the matchup with Oklahoma City. My worry for them is now when you go on to that next round and you're getting ready to play a Lakers team that's gargantuan. Mm -hmm. and, and will you be able to hold up physically can, can Covington and House and all these guys you know, P.J. Tucker, are you going to be able to get them out of this series in anything other than a, you know, a body bag after A.D. and Dwight <laughs> Howard and these dudes trying – like, listen, if you're the Lakers, what's your first order of business? You pound the hell out of the Rockets. Right. You know, you, you take your big guys, you take your big lineup and see if that can throw off what the Rockets want to do in terms of playing small. So, this – the playoffs is, is like – a series of boxing matches and styles make fights in the playoffs. The best talent doesn't always win because sometimes that talent is a horrible mismatch for the team you might be dealing with. I think this, the Rockets in any other year would be the perfect foil to conventionality. They, they'd have a team that plays a style that would throw every, every other team off, except for the fact that thanks to the Warriors, every team in the league has a small ball scheme. Every team in the Every elite team in the league has a lineup that they're going to go to if they're forced to play small at any point in time in a game or a series that they feel comfortable with. So I'll be interested to see if there's any counterpunch that the Rockets have if they go to what they think is their best lineup and it's no match for what the Lakers present. So let me counter that. Zach, feel free to jump in. I don't want to hog all this time, but we're talking Rockets. I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> so... So the Lakers, we only have one real sample to judge this matchup off of, and that's the game back in February because right. they played three times the first time. Um, I don't think AD played. Even beyond that, the, the Capella, Clint Capella was on the Rockets, so the entire makeup of the Rockets was different. Right, right. Um, and then the, the most recent game, LeBron did not play. So it was just AD, and then they pulled him after, I think, 30 minutes, 29 minutes. So back in February, when it was right after the Robert Covington trade, the Rockets had not yet added Jeff Green, who's become uh, a big player yeah. off, the, off the bench for them. Right. Um, AD gets his numbers, but it's almost like he's going to get his numbers not at the expense of his team, not necessarily that it's a detriment to the Lakers, but it's a, it, like you said, it's, it's a matchup of styles. The Rockets are going to try to outmath LA, right, with the threes, um, and they're basically yes. going to for, force Anthony Davis to guard Russell Westbrook. So I think the key starts there. AD's going to get his, you know, PJ is going to make it tough for him. Uh, Covington is probably more so going to be a help defender using his length uh, to kind of shade off and help. And he's been surprisingly, you know, having like two, three blocks a game. Um, yeah. So he's been capable. 
And then you got Jeff Green, who's not necessarily like a good defender, but just size-wise, he's probably Houston's third best option in that respect. Um, but so the, the thing that stands out to me, the main thing is, aside from all the size, everyone's focused on size and this and that. Look, Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee, don't, they're not going to post you up. Everyone thought Steve, uh, Steven Adams was going to dominate the Rockets. And if you look at his numbers, I mean, he, he literally almost averaged his season numbers against the Rockets. I think he had like 0.8 points less per game, a couple rebounds more, less blocks, less assists, exact same field goal percentage. Um, and at times he was a problem for the Rockets on the boards, and at times he just kind of wasn't there. And I think more or less you're going to see that with Dwight and, ja and JaVale. At times they're going to be problems. They're going to, you know, have possessions where they get three offensive rebounds, put back and one. And then there's going to be times where Dwight's out on the perimeter guarding Westbrook, he's going to get smoked. Um, yeah. But I think the key begins with, with the fact that L.A. only has one legitimate, consistent dribble creator and penetrator. Now, it, do, it just so happens that, that that guy is LeBron James, one of the greatest players of all time, which is a huge advantage for the Lakers. Um, but it's going to be a matter of where are they going to generate offense from? Because Anthony Davis has to be fed for the most part. Um, and it's also going to come down to, to whether or not Anthony Davis can hit his threes. He shot, I think, 38 39%. I think he was seven of 18 against Portland in the series, but that number is kind of skewed because he was four of six, I believe, in the final game five. And before that, I think he was three of 12. If I'm, I could be wrong, but I think those are the numbers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some of those games, he's like, oh, of five, oh, of three. Uh, so it's going to be a stylistic clash. Like he's going to eat, he's going to get his numbers, but he has to be fed. So my, con my not my concern, my uh, hope being optimistic is that the Lakers only have one consistent source of offense being created off the dribble. Um, like I said, that, that's LeBron James, so that's a pretty damn good source to have. You, you don't think AD down low is going to take a couple dribbles on these guys? No, no, he's going to eat, but you got to get him the entry pass, right? And so when, right. if you go back and run, run that game back in February, there's times where they force it down to him. He's hesitant, kicks it back. They repost. There's times sure. where the help, the help defense comes, and now he's got to kick it. And the Lakers, I mean, it's not that they don't have shooters, but they don't have great shooters, right? They're, they're one of the lower three-point shooting teams. Um, and Anthony Davis does have a history. I mean, so far he had a great first round. Don't get it, don't get it twisted, but he does have a history of not taking his team, you know, to the promised land in, in the playoffs. Not that that's going to repeat itself, but that's a mental thing that he's going to probably have to get over in the course of the series. So, but no, my point is he's got to be fed, right? Yeah. They only have one guy that can go get it. On well, I mean, team. I think, I think the, the X factor for the Lakers becomes Rajon Rondo and whether yeah. he's ready to, you know, play, you can take the ball out of his hands. And if I'm the Lakers, if I'm Frank Vogel, and I'm not here to tell me more, argue coaching, you know, acumen or whatever, but I'm saying if, if I know, and we're in a playoff setting, so that means whatever you've done by default is what's on tape. Everybody can study it. There are no secrets when you get into this situation. I'm posting LeBron. I'm, I'm taking LeBron, and instead of him facilitating my offense all the time, I'm going to take my opportunity to – to let Rondo be my creator and see if we can't feed the ball into LeBron and AD playing opposite sides or high and low. Because if AD likes to stand around at the L and, and drift out to the three-point line and shoot, if he's more comfortable out there and LeBron has an opportunity to take advantage of whoever is undersized and trying to deal with him, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that wrinkle if I'm Frank Vogel to see if that can't throw off whatever defensive rhythm the Rockets think they're in. The, the real, the real deal with this series, like all of them, is you, you count on your stars to do what they're supposed to do. It's the other dudes that you wonder which one of them is going to have the Eric Gordon game. 
which yep. one is going to have the the game, the, the Kyle Kuzma game, the outlier game where they end up performing above and beyond whatever their station is. I don't know that the Lakers, and this has been my concern with the Lakers all along, I don't know if their other parts can do what we saw all those Raptors guys do last year, which is play at a next level and then sustain it long enough for you to win a championship. I think that's been the question about the Lakers all year. It's the thing that's going to be tested now in this series far more than it was against Portland. No offense to Portland. They were a great story for the restart of the season. Um, but the minute Dame got hurt, that season was done. I mean, that, that series was done. And you knew that. The Rockets have to have, and I, I don't know that you say these sorts of things until you get into the moment, but Ben McLemore has to go off. Thank you. They got to play him you know, first. Mike Dan has, has to play Ben McLemore. Yes. I mean, those are the kinds of players to me in this series that will require extra attention for Houston because you can't depend on the, the units you've used in this first round series and, and give coaches credit. There are guys who play in, in one series and then don't see the floor sometimes in another because of the matchups, mm -hmm. because of the analytics that we know the coaching staffs are utilizing to figure out what works best against a given team. I'm counting on both teams making those sorts of personnel adjustments and understanding who's effective and who's not. And I'm telling you, the Lakers don't win this series. You're right. They don't win this series the way they think they could or hope if they try and play the way you're talking about. They have to take LeBron, and, and it's been very difficult for anybody to ever convince LeBron of this. He's the biggest dude on the floor sometimes. I don't mean height-wise. I'm just saying nobody, yeah, nobody takes up the kind of physical space he can. And if he doesn't use that to his advantage in this series, it'd be a shame. He can go anywhere around the basket in post, even out to 16 feet. If he's taking his defender and posting even that far out, He's changing the dynamics on that floor and making life easier for Anthony Davis. And if the if they Lakers do that, if they find a way to play a three-man game where you have Rondo, LeBron, and AD all as threats, Rondo a threat to facilitate, LeBron and AD as threats to score, I'm not sure how you counteract that if you're Houston. Yeah, I mean, last point I'll make, I'm going to alley-oop it to you, Zach, but the last thing I want to say right. to, to, to tack on to what Sekou's saying is it is the others. It's always – championships are won at the margins, right? So, first, uh, if you're going to put – I think it would be to Houston's advantage. If they're going to post LeBron, that means you got AD lingering on the, on the perimeter or vice versa, right? If you're posting up AD, he's either yes. going to eat or you got LeBron lingering on the perimeter because he's not really cutting at this point in his career the way, you know, he used to or he could. I think technically that's to Houston's advantage, or it could be. But as far as the others are concerned, as far as the margins are concerned, if you look at the first round, the last four games of the first round for the Rockets, Robert Covington uh, averaged, I believe it was 19 points a game, seven rebounds, three steals, two blocks, shooting 56 well, and three. Uh, Dan Wahouse was playing very well. I think he had 13, 12, 13 points, shooting 37% from three. Eric Gordon struggled to get going um, and then finally showed up in game seven in a couple other times. But his three ball finally showed up in game seven, and they're going to need that three ball at some point. Uh, yes. Basically, he had two good games and four duds, Eric Gordon. <laughs> exactly, yeah. He shot, he shot them out of it a couple times. Um, and then another guy, Austin Rivers, did not have a good series. But yeah. Oklahoma City had really good or, or good enough perimeter defenders and small enough guys that were quick enough to kind of give them, give them trouble. And I'm not sure that the Lakers have that same type of personnel. So I'm looking for Rivers, hopefully, 
to get going, to use his quickness to be a spark. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be about the margins for Zach. What do you think? I'm with Sekou. I think it, I hate putting it on the coach and making it such an important factor of the playoffs, but it always is. It's like the reason why the Bucks are down 2-0 right now, in my estimation, is Mike Boonholzer. It's the same for Nick Nurse right now. He's not the Nick Nurse of last year in the playoffs, but, yeah, he didn't have Kawhi. That's a big, big deal either. You can make a bunch of mistakes and not get exposed necessarily. But MDA's been set in his ways. Mike D'Antoni's been set in his ways for the last few years and just kind of been coasting. And it's it's the old saying, what's, what's working, don't – don't break it if it's working, you know, and I just hate the fact that <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, even if there's little tiny adjustments that could get you from a seven to an eight to a nine, I mean, a percentage of how, how well you guys can be the potential of the team, he's not making those adjustments. He's just what if they're, they're winning, it's going to just continue. And I don't see him being Ben McLemore didn't play at all in the first round. I don't really see him playing him unless they're down 0-2, really. Yeah. Or they're just getting spanked. And I just – I'm really worried about that from Houston's perspective because it's really going to come down to those guys. Like you said, it's the others. And James has done – when he's not shooting the ball well, he just does so many other things to elevate the other teammates. What other pe media people aren't going to give him his – his props for doing like elevating Robert Covington, letting Russ go off and get build that trust with him, and um, really just ex expand on the other players when his shots not falling, and really becoming a playmaker and picking and choosing, just being a smart player overall. But um, I really think the way the Rockets win this is just controlling the tempo the entire time. Uh, the Lakers, I don't think it matters what tempo they play. I just think they have to be able to score in the post as long as they can score in the post and otherwise it's going to come down to a three-point shooting battle and relying on guys like Caruso and Danny Green and Kuzma to knock down open threes because I think if the Lakers get into their pace I think that just plays into the Rockets on on defense because it gets them it allows them to be able to set up and collapse on Anthony Davis and just let the other guys uh, have to shoot threes and make them. And I think that's what they, they, they should, the game plan should be, is double-team AD down in the post. He should be their only worry in this series unless LeBron's going off because I don't think LeBron's really going to take over until they're really, really struggling. His whole MO lately has just been getting the others involved first and foremost and then coming in when needed. And so, I, I, I just think, it's really going to come down to the guys outside of the stars. Who's going to hit shots and can AD score in the post? But the way the Rockets have been playing defense, I just think I think they're going to maintain um, great defense in a slow game. It's the it's the transition defense that has killed them. Yeah, yeah. My mother point too about what we see from all these teams in the playoff, man. And this is where I think coaching becomes such a critical factor. Last year, Nick Nurse. He didn't coach with any ego. He didn't coach with any kind of incumbency. So he was willing to try anything to win. A specific quarter, a stretch of a game, a game, whatever. He was like, we'll, we'll scrap whatever conventional wisdom says we should be doing. You know, he's playing all those what people thought were gimmick defenses. But they're working. You know, so you got to have a coach. And this is where Mike D'Antoni, I think, falls into the trap, being a 
a seasoned coach, even for a guy as revolutionary as he was when he was in Phoenix, you know, when he convinced an entire league to change the way they played, basically. You've got to be able to scrap whatever you think you need to do on a, on a moment's notice in the playoffs to continue winning. And that's where I think Frank Vogel might actually have an advantage in that Vogel's not coaching with the kind of incumbency that a guy with his resume should. He's not, act, you know, he's not going to be acting like a guy who's comfortable in his position. If it requires him doing something different, he's got enough guys on that sideline that will convince him, hey, let's try this. The other part about it, though, is if you don't decide to play whatever players are best suited for a specific series, you're losing. And, and if, if you didn't learn that from anybody, it's Steve Kerr. The last five years when the Warriors are rolling back to the finals year after year, think about the different supporting cast that their core group had each and every time. Certain guys fit in certain series, and you have to be willing to play them and to roll those dice sometimes. That's why I, I mentioned Ben McElroy. I'm sure you guys laughed and other people, you know, because I, I get that he might not fit all the time, but you need wild cards against the Lakers. You need, you need your own version of what J.R. Smith used to be for Cleveland when, when they were, you know, competing for and, and won a championship, obviously, in 2016. You, that is the type of player to me that always swings playoff series, whether you like it or not. And it's because you can count on a certain level of production from your stars. What you can't account for if you're the other team, even on a scouting report, is, is this the night that this dude gets hot and makes a bunch of shots? Yeah, look, to, to tack on to that, um, real quick, tactically, I, I forgot to mention, um, when we were talking about the others and the margins, Kyle Kuzma's probably got to be that third person for L.A., or that's at least what the, what the surface-level expectation is. Yes. He had, a, he had a poor first round, I thought. Um, you know, 10, 11 points on 10 shots a game, 36%, I think, from the field. And that's not going to get it done against the Rockets. So who's going to step up for L.A.? Or are they going to get contribution by committee? That's important. And now, um, and then also, in that one February matchup against the Rockets between the Lakers, Dwight Howard played four minutes in that game uh, because he was played off the court. And so right. if that's the case, and I think there's some kind of stat that is correlated with Dwight Howard playing and L.A. winning. So if that's the case, I think that bodes poorly for the Lakers. Now, shifting to the coaching discussion, Zach knows I'm actually highly critical of Mike D'Antoni. Um, I, I have tons of praise for what he's done for Houston. He took Houston from being kind of a, an underachieving team from the Yao and McGrady years, and pretty much since the 1997 Western Conference Finals, which was their last playoff series win, uh, except for the one they got in 2009 against the Blazers. He took them from that kind of whatever uh, – reputation to now having their second longest streak of making the second round in franchise history four years in a row, perennial contender, um, you know, a force to be reckoned with in the league. So I have tons of respect for him in that regard. The one thing or many things that I don't like though, is that he is, that he went into retirement way too early, went into retirement like three years ago now or what? <laughs> well, he's just a broad perspective philosophy guy, right? So he, he's reinventing the league from a broad like overview um, and he's been great at that. Like he, the Rockets were ahead of the curve in 2018 when they went small and ISO and all that. But when it comes to in-game tweaks and in-game adjustments, he is, he's a, he's like a scorned significant other. It's man. not his strength. Yeah, it's not his strength. He's a scorned significant other. He's got trust issues with who he's going to play, right? So he's not going to play 
he didn't play Ben McLemore, like you said. There's reasons for that, but there's also reasons he's got to play Ben McLemore. Like, McLemore's Houston's weakest defender, specifically against L.A. I mean, against Oklahoma City, he was being targeted by Chris Paul. They were switching until they got CP or right. Schroeder, you know, ISO on McLemore and just took him to the hole. LeBron's going to do the same thing. He did it yeah. in February. But he's also Houston's best shooter. I mean, Houston's best shooter since Ryan Anderson, percentage-wise, I think 40 41% on the season. Mm-hmm. Quick trigger, he can light you up. And without that, like, you got to find ways to fit that guy into your rotation. It can't just be a binary decision where it's like, yo, he's either playing or he's not playing at all. Right. I, don't that, I don't think that's acceptable. Um, and, and then another guy that Houston fans on Twitter, you know, I'm, I'm heavy on Rockets Twitter, and Houston fans on Twitter always clown me for saying this, but they signed DeMar Carroll. DeMar Carroll's a veteran. DeMar Who? Carroll. DeMar Carroll. <laughs> DeMar Carroll knows how to play defense, man. And he's got, he's 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, he's got a wingspan. He's a guy you can throw in there for 10 minutes, get P.J. Tucker some rest, you know, keep the defense. Isn't he a rookie? <laughs> Isn't he? <laughs> nah, he's Br- Br- Bruno Caboclo? Is that who we're talking about here? <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's got to know how to press these buttons. Like you said, Steve Kerr, I'll never forget. Uh, I think it was game six of last year when Golden State closed Houston out. If you look at some of the guys on the court, I think in the late third quarter, I think Houston was up like 87-81, and then the Warriors made a push, kept it close, and they ended up winning. And some of the guys on the court, Jonas Jarebko, Quinn Cook, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, these are guys that Mike D'Antoni would never dream of playing them. But those guys were on the court. They, they kept the ship afloat until you could get some rest and get your guys back in to finish it out. And those are the kinds of things that he's missing. Um, and that, frankly, he's 69, 70 years old. Like, it's not going to happen at this point in his career. So, he hasn't learned his lesson. Um, and I think that could be old folks. I love it. We shade no folks on here. I dig it. Uh, hey, hey. No, no, no. no. <laughs> no I'm, just saying, I'm just saying he's stuck in his ways, right? Like, you got a guy yeah. like, like Vogel, who obviously I don't know how, how, how old he is. But like you said, yeah. he's not coaching with an ego, right? He's not stuck in his ways necessarily. Now, I bet if you talk to some Lakers fans, they might have the opposite criticism. They might say, Yo, Vogel is too willing to just try things to the point that sometimes it doesn't even work at all, and it throws everything off. But my my, my attitude about coaches is, and and I think you could, there's not a dude, there's not a head coach in the league who can't pick up a whiteboard and draw up a play. That I mean, that, we're not talking about guys who can or cannot complete the task technically. What we're talking about is if you, I'll give you a prime example. Go go back and watch. Game seven of Denver, Utah, and see how both coaches scrambled. Mike Malone didn't keep his rotation in the second half. They lost a huge lead and almost lost the game. Quinn Snyder abandoned his normal rotation to get back in the game. It worked. They get, you know, they came all the way back, took a lead, ended up losing, obviously. But that was, to me, that was a clear contrast in how you have to coach for situations as opposed to philosophy. Mm-hmm. You can't coach philosophy in the playoffs. Correct. Doesn't work. Nailed it. You can be whatever kind of coach you want to be, whatever your mantra might be as a coach. You get in the playoffs, if you want to win, you got to be willing to throw out whatever you think you know and try anything to survive. Mm-hmm. If 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 Mike D'Antoni doesn't change his stripes, because let's be honest. That's been his issue Absolutely. with these Rockets teams. They've had the talent to get over the, you know, that proverbial hump, and they haven't. Something's held them back. Well, it's been several things. His inability to be more flexible in his decision-making, 
James not showing up and playing at this, you know, superstar MVP level in high, le- you know, high level games where he has to be that dude. So, I mean, you can point to several things, but to me, the great equalizer, when you get to the level we're talking about, and when you get to the conference finals, there are usually, there tend to be four teams that can win a championship based on injury, luck, who's playing well, who's not. I mean, there's all these factors that are going to it. But all four of those teams, once you get down to the final four, any one of them could win it if things, you know, turn their way. Right. You got to make stuff turn. You got to make it turn your way. You yeah. got the coach is the one guy to me in that entire equation outside of whoever your best player is who has his fingers on the lever of whether or not you succeed because he can change on a dime in the course of a game, what you do. Now, a great player, now you, you could get a great player and he goes nuclear, you know, and does what Kevin Durant did for two years in the finals, which I thought he elevated the Warriors a couple of years in a row where it didn't matter what Steve Kerr did. As long as he didn't F up his rotation and take KD off the floor, they were winning those back-to-back championships. I don't care what you say. I don't care, you know, Fans can say what they want. If KD decided to go next level like he did, that's two years in a row in the finals, it was a wrap. Outside of that, you got to have a coach who's willing to do what Ty Lue did in 2016 and get right. on the rotation, play some of those guys. You remember he played Richard Jefferson when everybody's like, Richard Jefferson? Like, you know. Right, that, was, that was the move right there. Yeah, it's just some of those little subtle things you do as a coach that can alter the course of a series and potentially a championship run or not. Mike D'Antoni has to be willing. And I love Mike D'Antoni. Listen, yeah, I've played for him over the years. They swear they've walked through fire for Mike D'Antoni. A, I think it's got to do with the fact that he tells you to shoot no matter what, and he doesn't browbeat you about playing defense. Those are two things that all players I'm sure love. But he's got to be the difference maker for his team in this series because I don't think from a personnel standpoint you can count on the will of Russ and James – being stronger than the, the sheer competitive will of LeBron and AD. Yeah, and, and so how do you so how do you think this plays out? Conscious of time now, like I want to get a couple more questions in regards to the yeah. rest of the series. Uh, how do you think this plays out? What's your pick? Do you think he's going to make these adjustments? I, I, based on history, I don't think he's going to be as flexible as necessary, and I think that the Lakers win the series in six games, and if and it could be five. I just feel like. Sometimes we get into the playoffs and the, we forget that the better team is the better team for a reason. Like, it'll show. It'll start to show after three or four games if that advantage is is decided as we think it is. I'm exactly with you. I don't think, I don't think Mike D'Antoni makes any of the changes we just talked about. I don't think Ben McLemore maybe touches the floor more than ten minutes, which makes me very, very sad inside. Uh, <laughs> I think it's it's five or six games. Uh, I think the Rockets have the potential. I think it's the blueprints there uh, to take this to seven or even win this thing. But I just don't think the adjustments are going to be there. The only way the Rockets win is if Ben McLemore touches the floor every game. If uh, Russ or they don't need, it doesn't matter if it's Russ Covington or somebody has three 30 point games outside of James Harden. I think it's, that's what it's going to take. Maybe even two of them have, 20-point games at once, but it's going to take some big scoring outages from other players not named James Harden. Yes. That's – and I, I just don't trust it enough to go with the Rockets pick. I mean, Austin Rivers didn't – he 
he'd be one of those guys that say he can go he's for another. 20 to 30, but yeah. I, I just don't believe he's going to necessarily do it more than once. Um, I wanted to say real quick about your point in making those, being flexible enough to make those adjustments. I don't think he's going to do it, unfortunately. Uh, I don't have faith in it happening, but I did want to point out, what, what was the go-ahead basket last night? Does anyone remember? Because the Rockets are all about threes and layups. The go-ahead basket was P.J. Tucker pump faking from the corner oh, yeah. and doing that little midi floater, right? And, and that's something yep. that Tony would not tell him to do, but he did it. And it ended up being the go-ahead bucket that won the game. And to that effect, James Harden used to cook. And he used to cook the Warriors, too, from the mid-range. Um, you know, Thank you. I've been begging for it. And he never does it. And I'm not saying Houston needs to completely switch philosophy to do that. But in the moments where they just need a basket, you just got to go get a bucket. And D'Antoni does not encourage James Harden to, you know, make those little tweaks. So I think that's going to come back to bite him. I am yeah. going to say Rockets in seven. I can't abandon my oh. squad. I'm going to say Rockets okay. in seven because I think – Love it. I think – unless – I'll say with an asterisk, unless Scott Foster refs two or more games. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I would say I've, I've talked so much about the refs this morning with my dad and other people. Man, what a! I'm glad bad. I'm on the side of the bubble. I didn't want to be anywhere near Mark Davis last night because I'm sure he was in his room <laughs> with one eye open. This man, man, it's like Bro. we can have that discussion another day. But um, if, if yeah. Scott Foster has his fingerprints over two or more games, then that will worry me. But I'm going to say Rockets in seven because I think that people um, are stylistically kind of – they have the stylistic clash correct, but I think they're underestimating the simple math of, of how it's going to play out. And also, LeBron, on any team that he's had that's gone to the finals or that's been a finals contender, he's always had that role player or a handful of role players that were elite role players. And I think right. this season he's only got Danny Green, and Danny Green hasn't really been playing even at the level that he's used to playing at. Um, so, I don't know. If I was a Lakers fan, I would kind of be skeptical about guys like Kuzma and Caruso – um, hitting, you know, stepping up in those moments that they need because it's not guys like Mike Miller, you know, and, and some of the guys that we've seen Ray Allen step up for LeBron in the past. So I'm picking Rockets in seven. Um, I think that L.A. is going to force feed their big style and they're going to have success with it. But I think they're going to kind of be caught on their heels a bit when Houston speeds things up, gets in transition and starts hitting threes. Um, so I'm going Rockets, Rockets in seven for that reason. But we'll see. I, feel you on that. I, mean, I can't be mad at <laughs> I got to ask you, Xeku, this conspiracy was going around pretty hard last night. The fact that Scott Foster stepped in, was there any chance you think the NBA had it out for the Rockets not being played over in China? No, no. No, man, listen. As, as we. I'm not I, saying I agree. <laughs> no, no, as evidence, I mean, look. The, the, the officials are, are human beings, man. They screw up all the time like everybody else. And, and people have to, like, shake this thought from their minds that, that, that this grand conspiracy is going on. It's, I know it sounds good on Twitter and mm -hmm. on social media, but it's just – I, I went back and watched the calls that were made, and I'm, and I'm saying to myself, how in the world do you make that call? And you realize officials make calls that are controversial like that all the time. And it's based yep. on – their training and their interpretation of the game as officials. Now, I don't think it helps when you have these some of these same players always involved in these scenarios, like CP and always happening to to have whatever issues he has with Scott Foster is pretty unique. That's a that's a strange thing, you know. You look at it and go, "What the hell?" But <laughs> you know, Mark Davis 
has been in the middle of a bunch of controversial calls and critical games over the course of his career. That's as much a product of him being a high-level official and getting those assignments as it is anything else. Um, Speaking of I, that. I don't, I don't buy I, any, any co con conspiracy theories about how this yeah. I don't. L love to hear it. Love to hear it. So uh, speaking of Mark Davis, can, can I, say I love please, the please? fact. Okay, now keep going. Keep all going. right, go for it. No, no, all no, right, no. all right. You got it. You got it. I love the fact that he made both calls in that Milwaukee game, okay? As he screwed up on the first one big time. That Goran Dragic was straight up as all get out. The shooter was leaning forward. I think it was Middleton on that. Yeah. He was leaning forward, and Dragic wasn't in competing on any landing whatsoever he was he was stopped in his track the fact that he called that though he absolutely had to call the, the that final play on Jimmy Butler he was getting touched up like no other first and foremost by what Wes Matthews and then Giannis I mean hands all over him I mean to call the one call you had to screw up and call them both so I was very 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 proud of Mark Davis there <laughs> the consistency I got three things to say about the officials, okay? Number one, cons consistency. Absolutely, consistency. Um, if you look at the foul called on James Harden the, the, before the ball was inbounded, that could have changed the series, man. You could, you, you could have gotten somebody, multiple people fired based off that call if they make that free throw and then they, then they get Adams for the bucket for the game winner. And I just don't think that's, like, acceptable. If you see, if you see inbounds plays all the time, people got their, you know, NBA players wrapped aside all the time, all the time. Yeah. So to choose that moment to call it, like, it, it's consistency is the main issue. Second, accountability, right? Like, they're humans. They're going to mess up just like anything else. I mess up at my day job all the time. But I'm held accountable. Um, and I think that the thing that's frustrating for fans is that there's no accountability piece, right? Like, there needs to be an but accountability. Not, not, nothing we see out, yeah, nothing we see publicly. Right. Right, something yeah. that's transparent that gives you some type of affirmation, some type, some type of assurance as a fan, like, yo, okay, he screwed that up and he's being held accountable, so I can, yeah. I can sleep at night, right? The third piece yeah. is, now, I don't know if it's true. Um, I'm a big Chris Paul fan, so I don't think he's lying about it. Chris Paul has always seemed like a genuine guy to me, and I don't know if you saw, but he said Scott Foster said something to him before the game. I think that's unacceptable, period. Um, and I think it lends credence to the fact that some, some officials, maybe not all, but some officials like, like that mind game and they like to be the star of the show. And I'll add a fourth point. Scott Foster has a reputation as being linked with, mm. with Tim Donaghy, okay? So right. look, that's, that's, objective, <laughs> that's objective, cold, hard proof and evidence, right? That's, I mean, I'm not saying he still does it. I'm just saying if that is any other industry, you're out the door. <laughs> that, period. Yeah, okay. So, I, I get it. I get it. I'm just saying. Sounds like a true rocket. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that, that in order for these some of these conspiracies to be linked up, do you understand? Like, and I tell this to my good so much money family who are, who believe all this stuff is rigged. Do you understand the level of connectivity that would be required to pull off these sorts of conspiracies? I'm not saying there's a conspiracy. I'm not saying. No, that. I know. I'm saying, but just like because people point to all these facts. And they're like, hey, you know, look, look at all this. And it's like, <laughs> but Seku, how do you respond? Sometimes it's, how do you sometimes, sometimes it's just a bad call. Sometimes it's just a screwed up call. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, like, and, and in real time, it's so difficult to make those calls. And even when we, you know, when we've all played basketball, I'm sure there's been moments where we're like, man, what? No, it's all ball. But then if someone had a camera, you'd see you slap yeah, his wrist and you're wrong. But uh, how do you answer the fact that, I mean, we had Tim Donaghy. Like, we know it happened to some degree, right? 
So that I think that's what gives fans the unrest because they're like, yeah. look, it's not just a conspiracy. It did happen, and it wasn't that long ago. You know? Right. No, I mean, listen, you you can't you can't argue the the Donaghy situation. Everybody knows what that was, and it leaves a bad taste in people's mouth and leaves that lingering thought that it is every anything that doesn't go the way you think it should. Is it something more than just a bad call or just a mistake? Um, I watched back both both plays over and over again. I absolutely don't know how you called the dragage foul on Middleton. But then I then I think we see ticky tack fouls like that all the time during the course of the season, during the course of a regular game, and nobody you don't even you don't even yell at the TV. Yeah. It's the moment that gets you. All right. For Mark Davis to blow the whistle in those two instances. The last five points of that game, they shouldn't go to Jimmy Butler or to Middleton. Those Mark last Davis. Are on Mark Davis's ledger. And I, that's what I said. He, I can't imagine how bad, in a, and I'm not defending them or standing for officials, but I, I know if I was at my job and I made that kind of mistake that changed the outcome or determined the outcome of something, I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. I'd, I'd be up all night pissed at, at my mistake. So I know he had to see it. And if you justify it in your mind, and, and that's how you compartmentalize it and, and deal with it, that's one thing. But if you look at it honestly, those, you know, you got to know, man, I, I shouldn't have blown the whistle in either instance. Once you see the replay. He doesn't have the benefit of replay in the moment. So I understand that. But if you I'm look not- at those replays, I don't know how you – how you justify whistle being blown either time. Well, with Love that it. said, Sekou, we appreciate your time. We're going to blow the whistle on this one. <laughs> appreciate <laughs> it. But no, thank you so much, man. It was, I, I had a lot of fun talking it, talking about the Rockets. I could talk about the Rockets all day. We'd go for another 24 hours. <laughs> uh, but no, thank you so much, man. Zach, any last words before we wrap this episode up? Really appreciate you, Sekou. Good seeing you again, man. Enjoy. And, uh, Enjoy this ride, and uh, best best of luck mentally here. Hopefully, you're 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 free from that that cell, that prison you're in for a little longer yet. Uh, but no enjoy doubt. the ride once you get out. No doubt, fellas. Appreciate y'all, man. Enjoy the series. This this Lakers Rockets should be interesting. Yes, Take sir. Care. Harden versus LeBron. Let's go, baby. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Noble and Roos Show by Ball is Life. Today we're joined by a special guest, Seth Partnell of The Athletic. He's an NBA analyst for them. It's me and Roosh Williams, um, as always. But Seth, how are you doing tonight? Doing all right. Thanks for uh, having me. Absolutely. So with The Athletic now, you've been with, I think, for a year and a half or so. Um, and uh, looks like you cover the entire NBA from what I've understood and uh, do you have a focus with the athletic, or is it just being an analyst all around? Uh, covering the whole league, uh, primarily from a, a, an analytics-based standpoint, but also uh, leaning a little bit on on my kind of front office knowledge about how kind of these teams actually make their decisions. Awesome. So you spent some time with the Milwaukee Bucks. What was it? Three years uh, in their front office, it seems, and that's where your background is. Um, focused on that with the athletic now is you were a director of basketball research with the Bucks, and then what was that like on an, I'm not sure I've never really talked to somebody with that title um, oh what's the background there so it's a director of basketball research is essentially director of analytics uh, when I got hired we already had a director of analytics who was sort of my 
my uh, partner in crime. And so I couldn't be like director of analytics 2.0. So I had to come up with a job title and, and that seemed that that sounded fancy. So we went with it. So can you kind of elaborate for, for us simpletons on what that might entail? Um, and do you think, I know, or at least I think uh, over, you know, the last several years, Milwaukee has kind of adapted. Um, I don't want to say Houston's style, obviously, because Milwaukee's much longer and bigger, but they prioritize threes. Um, and then on the other, the other end of that spectrum, they surrender threes, right? And that's kind of the core of their philosophy defensively. So um, if you can maybe elaborate on some of that and what you may or may not have had a hand in contributing to that. So I'll take the last first. Um, you can reach the same place, you know, when you're deciding what you want to do, uh, whether you're, you're kind of going more traditional or, um, or from a, from a metric standpoint. And, uh, you know, Greg Popovich in San Antonio has kind of figured some things out about basketball and he's come to a lot of the same conclusions over the years that, you know, the, the analytics people would. And, um, by reputation, he's not big on the numbers, but he's sort of figured it out. And I, I say that by way of saying that, you know, when, when Coach Bud came to Milwaukee, he had a way he wanted to play, and it was a way that was very agreeable with kind of a, uh, a you know, a metrics-based um, approach. And I think the focus on the three-pointer is maybe slightly misplaced. Yes, the three is there, but it's more, the most efficient shots are dunks and free throws. So if we get dunks and free throws, and we limit the other team from, from getting them, uh, that puts us at an advantage. Now, offensively, how do you do that? Uh, well, you have Giannis, and then you spread the floor with shooters. So, yeah, you're shooting a lot of threes, but that's more to pull the defense out of the paint and let Giannis do his thing. It's more secondary. You're saying it's more secondary to Giannis being the focal point, kind of like in football, you're, you run to open up the pass. I mean, very much so, Yeah. Um, and then on the defensive side, it's okay. Well, we're going to take away the paint. We're going to not give up offensive rebounds. We're not going to give, we're we're not going to give up uh, many free throws. And so, you know, NBA teams are good. So, you, so trying to take everything away, you often end up taking nothing away. So, what are we willing to live with? I guess we're willing to live with, you know, a big, a pick and pop big shooting at a, a twenty-five foot three. You know, some nights they might hit a couple and we lose, but in general, the math is in our favor. And, um, and that's, I mean, that's a conclusion that was reached kind of prior to, you know, any sort of discussions about how it would look analytically. So uh, it's a long-winded way of saying, I don't think I should take any credit for, for anything at all. So to kind of tack onto that, one thing that I'm wondering, and, and you know, I, I like to be specific because I think, I think basketball is largely contextual. I think, you can lay fun the fundamental baseline for, you know, what you're going to be, what your identity is going to be and how you're going to get from game one to game 82. But uh, I do think that teams need to be conscious of how those ideal scenarios don't always play themselves out. Right. So um, like I said, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Houston Rockets. And so a lot of times I find myself disagreeing with how, uh, you know, they just have one way of playing and they refuse to, to, to tweak it whatsoever. So to that effect, uh, the Bucks give up a lot of corner threes. And I've noticed that specifically because against the Rockets, they give up a lot of corner threes. So maybe I'm wrong overall, but I noticed like in that matchup and uh, against a team that will try to exploit them accordingly, that corner three is going to be open because Brooke Lopez is going to sag down and clog the paint, um, which seems to be in accordance with their philosophy. So 
if they meet a team that destroys them from corner three, do you think that could just do them in, or do you think they would adjust? And if so, how do you see that unfolding? Uh, is this is this the part where you make you uh, bring up Fred Van Vliet and my you know my eye starts twitching and <laughs> stuff like that? No, I mean it's it's um, yeah, guys who a team that 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 can hit shots is is a tough opponent, but it's a tough opponent for everybody. Um, yeah, in general, the the, the Buck style actually is pretty good at limiting quarter threes. Uh, the Rockets are one of the best teams basically ever in terms of getting corner three. So on those particular matchups, it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, paper covered rock kind of uh, in sort of the game of, of rock, paper, scissors that a lot of kind of basketball is. Um, so that, I mean, some nights that happens. Um, but in general, the, the, the theory is sound. Now, whether that, that holds true in sort of playoff conditions, that, that's, I think that's an open question. And I think that's, that's an open question both for the Rockets and, and the Bucks at this point. Yeah, I agree. Hey Seth, when the Bucks have made their personnel decisions um, over the last, let's say, five years, and is it more mainly surrounding Giannis, or is it main, mainly more so leaning to – I'm sure it's both, a collaboration of things, but is it weighing more on the Giannis side of things or more towards the analytics and the system they want to play? Um, I don't think those are those are not inconsistent. Um, I, I, as you guys said, like a lot of it's very contextual. So, the the sort of what would the the analytically indicated player? Okay, we know how we're going to play because we have Giannis. So, yeah, you can you can look at like one number metric and say this player is better than that player, or you can look and say okay. Um, a guy who's going to, you know, post up at the elbow and operate from there and maybe get in other people's way, he might be a, quote, better player than this other guy who's going to space more. But for us, the, the, the guy who's going who's gonna to space is going to be more effective because we already have the guy who's going to kind of operate from the middle of the floor. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really see those as in opposition. I will say that kind of um, there's different phases that teams go through and kind of when you're – you know, going from 30 to 40 and 40 to 50 wins, you're kind of just getting the best players you can because by the time you're actually like good enough to win, who knows what your team's going to look like. Whereas when you, when you're in that, you know, that, that 50 plus range, it's just like, you're kind of making the small tweaks to, to get the best guys for you a little bit, if that makes sense. Uh, so there was a little bit of a change over my time uh, there from, from, you know, upgrading the overall talent level to getting the right mix of talent. That makes sense. Um, to that effect, given that one of the main players that they've chosen to surround him with um, for years to come is Chris Middleton. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Chris Middleton and, you know, what may or may not be going on with him so far in this series. He came alive in the fourth today and actually ended up with a pretty decent stat line. Um, but prior to that, it was it – was, I was surprised. I mean, I've seen Chris Middleton play, obviously, and I was just surprised that such a good shooter was not able to shoot. And I kind of wanted your, your opinion or input on, you know, what you're seeing with Chris Middleton, um, if it's cause for worry down the line, or, you know, if you're not worried for whatever reason. So a couple things. First of all, he's a player who, this season aside, has tended to start seasons kind of slow. Um, and in, in a way, like the bubble is sort of starting a season. 
So there might be some of that going on. Um, at the same time, like shooting is one of those things that, that can come and go a little bit, especially if you're taking a pretty tough mix of shots. And, and uh, uh, one of my, my colleagues at The Athletic who covers the Bucks day-to-day, Eric Name, uh, has, has, started, has, been, has referred to Middleton for the last couple of years as the Tough Shot Express. Um, and, and, you know, and so if you, a guy, if, if, if a jumper can come and go a little bit and you're taking tough shots, you can go through a stretch of, you know, a week or two where it doesn't look pretty. Um, but then there are also, you know, various times that, uh, certainly a couple of years ago, uh, you know, when it flips the other way, ask the Celtics in that seven game series we had against them a couple of years ago in the playoff when his, you know, his, his shot chart was just kind of a wall of green because he was, you know, hitting every shot from every area. Um, so is it something to be worried about? I mean, anytime, you know, well, if this team's best player doesn't, you know, perform up to their capabilities, that's going to hurt them in the playoffs. Is there any special worry about him? I don't think so. So you're basically saying, if I got this yeah, right, really. you're saying that, the, the poor play or however you want to categorize it isn't a result of something intangible or something that just, you know, kind of got him off balance, you know, the, the moment's too big, something like that. It's more so just shots aren't falling. Eventually they will. And it's, it's all going to even out and he'll come back up. Uh, more or less. I mean, it, you know, not necessarily that, that he's, that, he, you know, people often think that there's some kind of like rubber band that goes on, you know, if a guy shoots poorly, well, he's due to be hot. And it's like, no, he's just due to, play how he normally plays um and so i mean barring you know knowing anything else he doesn't i mean he doesn't look bad physically uh he's not taking like different shots than he normally takes sometimes some of them are just not going in as much so you know barring it extending like significantly longer or finding out something's wrong with him physically like it's it's hard to say that it's a a, an especial concern the way the playoffs played out right now, do you still think the Bucks are the favorite to come out of the East? I don't know if they were always your favorite. They've always been mine. Um, I think they, they have to be considered the most likely. Um, I think that uh, especially Miami uh, is maybe a little better than I thought kind of going in. So it, I think that the Bucks are still a, a – uh, presuming that, that that both teams advance, the Bucks are are a clear favorite in that series. Um, maybe Miami. What, what's that? What worries you about Miami? I mean, the, they're they're the the breadth of their shot makers. Um, you know, you can you can you can throw how many different guys who can who can spread the team out and shoot. I mean, Duncan Robinson is 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 I, someone who I would be losing sleep over if I was you know, on, on the Milwaukee staff. Uh, I mean, Tyler Harrow, who's, you know, from these parts, um, has had a really good rookie year. Goran Dragic is, is um, that's a sneaky good uh, thing that's, that's sort of happened for Miami in the bubble is when Kendrick Nunn left, uh, they kind of just put Dragic back in the starting lineup and uh, that's, that's been really good for them. Um, I mean, obviously I think Dragic is a better player. Um, and so just kind of starting with your best group um, has, has helped them. Um, and then they have, you know, they have a a few guys they can throw at Giannis and, um, Jimmy Butler's kind of a tough matchup. So it's, it's, again, I would, I would 
you know, if you're asking me straight up who I think would win that series, I think the Bucks. But, you know, whereas prior to the playoffs, I might think of, of uh, you know, they were, a, they were a four or five to one favorite. I think it's closer to two or three to one now. Um, and in, just in terms of who's most likely to do what, uh, it's a pretty strong, you know, uh, decline in your odds. I think all three, the uh, Celtics, Key and Raptors, can all throw multiple bodies at Giannis, and I think that's what makes it super interesting where they don't have a clear number two where Middleton's not going off like he has in the past playoffs. I mean, I think things get very interesting at that point. Um, they kind of do what uh, Toronto did to him last year. I, I think the Bucks, I mean, have as good a shot as any of those teams to lose, in my estimate. You're hurting me every time you bring that up. <laughs> I mean, I still think Toronto. Are you from Milwaukee? No, I'm not. But I was. I was. Uh, that I was still with the team at the time. So I. I just have uh, visions in my head of Fred Van Vliet yeah. going like, you know, 93 in a row from three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. I think uh, obviously Kawhi's not there, so that makes a very, very material difference. But um. I think Toronto has the, the, you know, the outline or the makeup to be the type of team that can go at Milwaukee. Obviously, they have some bodies. They have some length. They have some talented bigs that can hang with Brooke Lopez. They have shooters. Um, and I think they have pretty, pretty decent depth. So I, I think Milwaukee – I'm sorry, I think uh, Toronto has as good of a chance as anyone. And uh, my sleeper, personally, for me, in the East is Boston. Um, I think Tatum has been playing, you know, great. I think Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart – um, just the way that they're constructed. Kemba Walker's been playing been playing great lately. I just think the way they're constructed, they're going to be a tough out no matter who they play, and they're well-coached, and for those, you know, very specific reasons, obviously. I think they'll be a tough out for anyone. So Toronto or, or Boston eventually against uh, Milwaukee is, I think, going to be a hell of a series. My big I mean, big worry about Toronto would be they're, they are a pretty mediocre half-court offensive team. And so if they can't get easy scores off of their defense – um, that's really where they're going to miss Kawhi. They don't have great shot creators. Um, Lowry can do it a little bit. Siakam can do it a little bit, but especially against a, you know what is an uh, what has been over the season kind of an all-time great defense. You do wonder if they're going to find enough ways to score in the half court. Um, now, if they can, you know, if they can, you know, get turn their defense up, get some turnovers, play on the break more that becomes less of a problem, but, but especially to the extent it becomes a half court game, that's where you, you, even though I think Toronto is the second best team in the East, that's where I think the matchup maybe gets away from them a little bit. What about Boston? Um, Boston's almost the flip side is, is I think each team would have a little bit of trouble stopping the other. Um, you know, Boston has two great pull-up jump shooters in Tatum and, 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 and Kemba and, you know, even, uh, uh, even Jalen Brown is, has, has started to add that to his game a little bit. Um, that would be more of a worry if, if you, if you were confident that Brennan, that, that Gordon Hayward, Brennan Hayward, uh, Gordon Hayward was going to be healthy and, and, and ready for that series. Um, uh, just, just from a, from a depth standpoint and having, you know, lineups you can put out there that have three and four like ball handlers who can shoot like that's tough for anybody for to guard um so but at the same time i don't think that they have a, they have i don't think they have much for Giannis. like 
probably Marcus Smart is that is the best matchup there. Um, and and that and that's interesting, but that could also get him in foul trouble pretty easily. Um, so I, Do not I don't know. Tatum and Brown back and forth in that role. Um, I think I think Giannis is just too big for 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 both of them. I think that's like fair. Smart's Smart's biggest like thing that he brings, even though he's like smaller in stature, he's he's very strong and very physical. And it, like it's not it's not like uh, Tatum and, and Brown are 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 wilting, but they are are not quite as as physically formidable as Smart is. Yeah, there's a lot to be said in my opinion for the um, you know, like the six three, short short right with quotes around it because obviously he's not a short guy, but shorter than you know other people they're guarding six three, low center of gravity, uh, and very strong with quick feet. Those, those types of guys can give a lot of people problems. Uh, specifically, look, Harden is – I think the, the Lou Dort stuff is a little overblown because Harden has kind of had his way. He, he's Harden has beaten himself, but Lou Dort has played great defense on him um, and has definitely frustrated him. And so Marcus Smart is kind of built the same way. Obviously, Marcus Smart has, like, different tricks. And, you know, he's. I think he'd be a frustrating person to have guard you just because, you know, he does different things. But, um, but yeah, I, I can I can see kind of what you're saying there. He's going to have that low center of gravity and that strength to kind of wall off Giannis drives uh, and force shot attempts, you know, over the top. So I was just wondering if you're you're saying that Marcus Smart does different things. Is that uh, is that a nice way of saying he's maybe a little chippy, maybe a little dirty, maybe a little a little bit, you know, a little chippy, a little dirty, even a little uh, just a little flopping, just the theatrics, you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, I'm definitely not a fan of it, but it works sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. But it can just be you need difficult. It. You need that guy. Yeah. Well, no. If, I mean, you love him if he's on your team, right? Like a Pat Bev. But <laughs> if you have to, if you have to go against them, it's just like, ugh, you know. But, but at the end of the day, uh, for superstars, like when you're going against a guy like that, just any little thing they can do to get in your head, whether it's throw you off your balance, whether it's draw a couple quick offensive fouls on you that you weren't expecting. And Giannis, I mean, a big part of Giannis's game is bullying to the basket. So if a guy like Smart can step in there and take a couple charges quick. You know, I mean, any any little thing to get an advantage because obviously you're not going to stop Giannis really in any other way. Um, so yeah, I mean, any, anything you can do to get an advantage, kind of in that way. The way it sounds to me, Toronto poises the biggest challenge to Milwaukee in your estimation, right? Ah, uh, it's tough between the three of those teams. Like honestly, <laughs> like the I'm not sure. I think that I think it's going to be I think it's going to be I'm two, yeah, two dangerous well, series. Man. It's tough to think. Well, look, let me ask you this. If, if you were still with the team, theoretically, in terms of preparing for the other opponent, who do you think they would be favoring? Just, just what matchup do you think they'd like to see um, or they wouldn't like to see? And, and when I say matchup, I mean like individual matchups across the board, uh, not necessarily like team versus team, but just kind of individual matchups that they feel like they might have an advantage in. I think that they would, they would not mind seeing Toronto again at all. Okay. Because Kawhi's uh, gone? Because Kawhi's gone, and also there's probably a little bit of the revenge factor from last year. Right. Um, Do you think there's I, any type of tweak they've, meet, they've made um, on their own, notwithstanding Kawhi's departure, that they feel like has kind of given them, you know, a step up in that advantage since last season? I mean, I think, I think Kawhi was the most impactful player in that series, uh, and, and so it's just, just taking that away. Um, Presumably, like makes Fred VanVleet less effective, um, and and just puts 
from a defensive standpoint, puts far less stress on the Bucks to kind of get out of out of kind of the coverages they want to be in because they they Toronto doesn't have that one guy who's just who's who's just going to square you up and beat you. Um, I mean, you know, again, Lowry can do it a little, Siakam can do it a little, but see, like you live with it, not like oh, we have to change what we're doing because this guy's just going to kill us if we keep doing this. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree there. Um, well, if you if Milwaukee does make it to the finals, so let's talk a little Western Conference and, and talk about who they may or may not want to see out of the Western Conference. Who poses a bad matchup? Any uh, any collection of teams, or do you think Milwaukee kind of feels comfortable against anyone they see? I think the Lakers are a better matchup for them than the Clippers. I think the Clippers have more shooting have more bodies that they can they can throw at Giannis um and that I think that's um I I think that that's basically what it comes down to um you know the the Lakers don't don't have a lot on the perimeter that would scare me a lot um and the fact that the Lakers are almost always going to be playing two bigs um allows Milwaukee to do what they want to do defensively uh, I think I mean I think that would be a, a I think it would be a good series. I think just from a matchup standpoint, uh, it's more favorable. How important is it that Middleton I mean shows up eventually here? Because I think I mean a collective effort as long as Giannis is averaging 32, 15, and six, whatever he's playing out of his mind. This team is so deep. I don't know if they need him to be 100 percent one to make it there, but. Uh, I don't know. What, what's your take? How, yeah, no, I think, I think he, he's an incredibly important player as we uh, move deeper into the playoffs. Um, just because, uh, again, against similar to Toronto almost, as you play against better opposition, you are forced to, you know, grind out more tough possessions against a half-court defense. And, and that's really where Middleton can start to shine. I mean, you know, talked about the tough shot express. Sometimes you end up with tough shots and having one of the couple best shot makers in the league uh, um, take those shots is a tremendous advantage if he's especially if he's you know kind of feeling it a little bit and is is making them i I wanted to ask um so like we we always talk a lot about uh you know the main guys Giannis middleton so on and so forth uh, i I am of the belief that championships are won at the margins largely um and so who are, in your estimation, who will be those guys for Milwaukee? One, one person I know whenever Houston matches up with, with Milwaukee that always, I feel like, outplays, you know, his averages uh, is a guy like Pat Connaughton, for example. Um, the, the big ones for Milwaukee are, I think, because they're so key to Milwaukee's defense, are uh, Brooke Lopez and Eric Bledsoe making jump shots. Okay. Um, or, or in, in Bledsoe's case, um, uh, making just all around positive offensive plays, um, you know, and, and taking it, stupid shit. <laughs> just, I'm not an Eric Bledsoe guy. I just never been. I like him on the defensive side of the ball, but I just think he negatively impacts the team so much in offense. Yeah, he's like one of those shorter combo guards that isn't necessarily the most efficient because he's never been like a great shooter, um, you know, but he's the kind of guy that he'll put up big numbers on a bad team, but on a better team, you need him to like play the role and hit, you know, three and D really three and D with occasional creating when it's needed. Having someone else who can, you know, beat their man 
get in the paint, cause the defense to enter like rotation scramble situations. Um, that's something that, that Bledsoe can do pretty well. And then you're getting, you know, the Bucks have a lot of guys who are decent but not great shooters. But those guys become pretty good shooters if you're getting them open shots because the defense has collapsed on penetration elsewhere. And so even even Bledsoe giving them that um, is is something that against a, uh, like a stout defensive team is, is going to be important. Yeah. Um, what about George Hill? Yeah. I mean, George Hill has not played as well since the restart as he did during the season when he shot 50 something percent from three for most of the year. Um, but he's, I, I, he's a guy who has a little bit of, of kind of ability to, to break down off the dribble, but I don't think that he has quite the ability to turn the corner as, as Bledsoe does. Uh, and also just, you know, he's not a guy, I don't think you can, you can rely on for that sort of minute load over, um, you know, a long series. So I, he's he more falls into the category of a guy who's going to hit shots and 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 play off the ball that way, but in terms of really getting in and breaking a defense down, um, like aside from Giannis, like Bledsoe kind of has to be that guy. So if there was a player um, in your time with the Bucks uh, that you would either acquire through trade or free agency um, that you just wish the team could have had and that would have been a perfect fit for them, who who would that have been? Uh, the guy who I always kind of wanted was was joe harris um i think he would have been just a for especially for uh the way the team plays now a, a bigger wing who's one of the you know the great shooters of the last couple of years and much better off the dribble um, um both you know attacking a closeout uh making the right pass and even finishing at the rim that he's given credit for and like i said a, a bigger wing too which you know the bucks don't have great size on the wing aside from middleton and as you get deeper in the playoffs, you start to run up against the teams that have these like big, uh, <laughs> these these bigger scoring wings, and, and having just one more body to throw at them would be would be nice too. On top of a guy who shoots you know mid forties from three. Speaking of Joe Harris and the Nets, I mean, coaches on the on the market. I think it's a, a big opportunity for. A lot of young uh, assistant coaches and whatnot. Do you got a coach in mind that'd be perfect there? You think Pop has a chance at all to get that spot in Brooklyn? What about Pop? You know, I have no idea if the Pop thing has any legs at all, or is that just that that's just people talking? Um, I I have to think that they're going with an with an established coach there. Um, they're they're a team that their window is now, and I don't think that they're going for a first time coach. Um, now it seems like, you know, three or four teams are going to try to hire Ty Lue this summer, but the Nets are obviously going to be one of them. I saw that the Sixers, uh, reportedly might have some interest in Ty Lue. I think that would be interesting. Um, I saw someone on Twitter say, uh, <laughs> say that in the coaching search, the Sixers might step right over Ty Lue. thought that was funny paying homage to uh, the Iverson shot. But personally, man, look, I don't know if, if, if there's any legs to these pop rumors at all. Uh, I think Popovich leaving San Antonio would be a shock. Just not, not, not that I'm saying I don't think unbelievable. I'm just saying if he did, like, wow, that'd be wild. And I'll also say as a Rockets fan, whew, I would, Mike D'Antoni's been on the hot seat for a while. I know it will never happen, but I would love to see Popovich in Houston. It's, it's, it's just hard for me to believe that, that he, would, he would, at this point in his career, like – want to but you know 
he's obviously earned the right to do whatever he wants to do. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm uh, you know, like I, I wouldn't criticize him for doing it. Seth, my last question for tonight is, do you think Roosh's Rockets or the Los Angeles Clippers have any chance of losing these series? Um, a chance, yeah, I would be. How big? Let's... Man, Luca's a bad man. <laughs> um, I don't dirty know. I would, boy. Yeah, dirty, I would, dirty boy. Um, if I had to think, I, I would still in that series. I think the most likely outcome is the Clippers win the next two, and kind of close it out in six. Um, Houston, you know they've. I think feel like the two games they won, they won pretty easily, and the two games they've lost have been close. So that has a way of making the series seem almost closer than it is. So I, I don't know. I, I think that the that, that the Rockets are in more danger. I mean, part of that is Clippers are better team than the Rockets are. Um, but uh, I like I, I'm not thrilled about being two two, but I'm not especially worried because I think we've got the better team and, you know, we maybe have one or two things go against us and, and we'll, we'll, uh, you know, we'll make it, we'll make it happen and, and, and get through. And, you know, Paul George is going to make a shot. Um, and, and the, I trust Harden to figure out the, uh, <laughs> the conundrum that is Ludor's defense uh, before too long. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think... He looked pretty sharp today for the glimpses I saw. Yeah, well, he was until, until uh, you know, the last 12 minutes or so. But um, I think, personally, as far as the Mavs and Clippers go, look, Pat Bev is out. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that when Pat Bev is out, the Clippers are much more unstable than when he plays. Um, and I mean, you're going against the best offense in the league. You're going against one of the best offenses in NBA history. I think possibly the best offense in NBA history uh, as far as the metrics go. So anything can happen. You know, you have your, your, one of your better perimeter defenders out. You're playing against an extremely potent offense. I mean, we saw anything can happen. You know, if they come alive, you could lose any games. I expect the Clippers to come alive eventually, and, or Paul George more specifically, to come alive and contribute to closing it out. Um, I'd be more worried about Houston personally, and maybe that's my bias speaking. But uh, look, the Rockets can't—they can't stop Dennis Schroeder, and that's been a problem. It has been the X factor of the series thus far in terms of, you know, if if Dennis Schroeder shows up, OKC wins. If he doesn't, they lose. So far, that's that's how it's played out. And Houston's really shown no signs of being able to stop him over the last two games. Now you got to think they're going to break the glass, so to speak, bring Russ back in. Um, and the danger there is if Russ requires any acclimation period and he, if he needs to kick off the rust so to speak it could cost Houston a game and they're, they're at a juncture where they can't lose a game um, so everyone's kind of thinking you know Russ will come back they'll close it out yeah but Russ the, the way Russ plays directly clashes with the, the rest of the way Houston plays and he's kind of like their counter they're, they're yin to their yang um, but when he kind of gets off his game he can turn the ball over a lot he can take you know the, the contested mid-range shots that they don't like um, and you never know. And on the other end of that, they've been playing really good defense. They've, they've been, for the most part, they've been communicating a lot. And Russ has kind of been aloof on defense for most of the season. So it's kind of going to come down to whether or not he locks in um, and if they're still on one page. So I think Houston, 
could be in trouble. I'm not, I'm not completely worried yet, but um, I think it's a coin flip for Houston. Shook. Coin flip. Yeah. Hey, man, look, OKC's good. I, I think Rockets fans roasted me on Twitter for, for suggesting that this is going to be a tough series. But Chris Paul showed up the last two games. Shea Gilgis-Alexander has been playing very well. Like I said, Schroeder and Gallinari um, has been shooting well and playing well. So, like, they're balanced across the board. And Houston is, is really heavily riding James Harden. And Mike D'Antoni specifically has heavily been riding James Harden. Um, and you've got to think over the course of seven, you know, what's going to win out. So they really need Russell to come back, I think. Seth, who makes worse adjustments, Brett Brown or MDA? And don't don't kick a guy when he's down. More adjustments. Don't <laughs> kick it. Don't don't kick a guy when he's down. Come on. That's yeah, that's weak. No, he. We'll pull on, we'll pull you know, for Brett Brown. Yeah, it's you know. We get we, we when we talk about coaches, we get so reductive and say he's a good coach, he's a bad coach. Like there's just like players, coaches are, you know, right or wrong for a situation. Now, of course, the very best coaches are good in any situation. And, you know, um, is Brett Brown one of the very best coaches? No, but he he did some good things in his time in Philly and you know, seven years is a long time and sometimes it it's it's just kind of time and it doesn't reflect, you know, badly on, on the coach who, who has, who has to go. It just means it was time and, and try something else just to get, you know, a new voice in the room. Cause I think this is one of those things that people on the outside don't understand. It's just how much time you spend with everybody uh, when, when you're on one of these teams, like how, like this season's weird because of the, of, of the stoppage and everything, but, it's probably even amplified back in the bubble. Um, just how much you're around these people and just, you know, having to hear the same voice, you know, with the same sort of ticks, tell the same stories every day for seven years. I mean, that's, that's, you know, when you, when you hear about players tuning a coach out, that's what they're talking about. They're not, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's like the, the coaches is terrible and, and, and full of nonsense, but more often it's just like, okay, I've heard your motivation thing 73 times before. And I'm just, I, I just can't today. Yeah. And it just, you know, someone different with saying the same thing a slightly different way just makes it get through a little better. So, you know, let's not, let's not go crazy on, on, on Brett Brown. I mean, he, you know, the, with Simmons out, Bo like Boston had, five of the five or five of the best seven six of the best eight players in the series like of course of course they're gonna lose that series when Simmons is out and yeah it could have could it have been more competitive sure but it wasn't you know if Philly pull, pulls out game three and Boston wins in five is that really materially much different I don't think so anyway well, and I think I think a lot of their issues this this specific postseason centered around I mean first of all yes the fact that Ben Simmons is out that's huge uh, and a lot of times when we tie a coach's legacy to, you know, a series or a series of circumstances where one of their best players wasn't playing, it's just never fair, period. But um, I think the larger, broader picture here, or broader issue, sorry, uh, is the roster construction, man. I mean, they threw, they threw big money at Al Horford. I, I, I still don't know why they would have done that. Um, and when you look back at some of the decisions they've made over the, over the you know, the years, the uh, Tobias Harris trade, uh, a couple of couple other trades like they let some people walk that they 
could have really built a team around, especially around Embiid and uh, Ben Simmons. So I don't think, I mean, I know what it's like to not be happy with your coach and I don't watch the 76ers night in and night out. So I can't speak to it, but I, I just, I just don't agree with their overall roster construction. I don't think they were set up for success, at least this season. And I think they made some, look, they do the kind of thing that teams do when they decide, look, we're going all in now and we're going to do it. Uh, and it might sacrifice the future. And they made the gamble and it didn't work. You know, they, they made the trade for Butler, didn't get to re-sign them. They let Reddick go. I thought Reddick was a big part of what they were doing. They, they kind of let some of their shooters go. They got some shooters back, but it never just blended the way that, that it was when they, you know, became that team that we were all starting to hype up. So I think they kind of blew it up before I got a chance to blossom. I mean, that's, that's certainly a fair way to look at it. I mean, I, the way I, I, I tend to try to not be deterministic about these things. I think the moves they made worked out about as badly as they could. And that's, you know, it's, we knew that, that Horford, Simmons, and Embiid were a tough fit together. Uh, I don't think anyone would have thought that they were as, they would be as bad offensively as it was when the three of them played together. If you look at how they played, when any, when, when any, well, when any, like, you know, you, you thought there might be problems, but you didn't think that that would be like a worst in the league offense. Well, I mean, when you can't shoot, you know, and when you, when you don't have flexibility to acquire guys that can shoot and create, like who can shoot and create consistently at, at a, you know, an, at an above average level on that roster. I mean, who can do both Tobias Harris and then, and then what? You know what I mean? So I, mean, I think they thought I think they thought they were getting more of that from Josh Richardson than they got. Like he was hurt and not great this year. And I think that like that was something that definitely worked out uh, poorly for them. Like I think you given his his defensive ability, I think it was very plausible at the time to have thought, you know, okay, JJ was great for us, but we're gonna be so good defensively with with that starting five that, you know, okay, we'll be average offensively, but that's gonna be good enough. And that was the theory they went on, and it just and A, they weren't average offensively, and B, they, they, they weren't quite as good as they needed to be defensively. Uh, and then they just, and then they didn't have enough shooting either in the starting lineup or really coming off the bench. And then you know players got hurt, and and it it, it looked even worse. Yeah, I also think it's tough to um, to be you know a championship team these days, at least at least as far as like the current stars that we have in the league. Now this could change when LeBron and Harden and, you know, whatever, whoever the perimeter players are start to get older and move on. But I just think it's tough to be a championship team when your best player is a center that can't create uh, for himself and others from the perimeter. Cause he's always going to rely on being fed. And I think that's one of the weaknesses of the Lakers too. Anthony Davis is their second option. They are, they are exclusively reliant, almost exclusively reliant on LeBron to create off the dribble and their second star needs to be fed. Um, so with Embiid, I mean, Ben Simmons can't spread the floor. No one else can really create at the level that we were talking about that they need. And then Embiid can't do it either, and he's their best player. So I just think that's like a, it's tough to navigate those waters when that's how your team is constructed philosophically. That's fair. But at, at a certain point, like, I mean, okay, you, you have Joel Embiid, and he's an imperfect best player. <sighs> Do you start over or do you try to make the best of it? And I agree. You know, and maybe they, maybe they, and it's, I think, probably in retrospect, you would say that they maybe made the, made some wrong choices in how to make the best of it. But I think, again, their theory of what this team would be isn't ridiculous. It just didn't work. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, again, you, you look at that, you look at the starting mm-hmm. five of, of, of Richardson, Harris, Simmons, Embiid, and Al Horford, and that could be, you know, on paper, one of the great defensive teams all time of all time, especially you're bringing like Matisse Thibel, who, you know, everyone kind of knew was going to be a really good defender right away off the bench. Like that's a team that's going to stop some people. And it did. They were a good defense. Um, but they, but again, how poorly that, that, that lineup fit together offensively because Josh Richardson couldn't make enough shots and, and Al Horford, you know, was, was unable or unwilling to, to be like a, a four spacer that he's been at, at times earlier in his career, uh, spe- specifically part of parts of his Boston career. Um, you know, that it, it worked about as badly as it could, you, you could have reasonably been expected. Does yeah, that I mean, mean it was the wrong decision? Maybe, but it's, it, 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 you don't know that when you make the decision. So it's, you, you got to go back to what they knew when they decided what to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really disagree with anything you're saying. And I think it did work out about as bad as it could have. So it's sometimes it's like, it just didn't bounce the right way for them. And had a couple things gone different, we could have a totally different outlook, right? And trust is me. It, is, I, that I a four, is that a four bounces joke about the 76ers? <laughs> Perhaps. Um, and look, I always invoke my Rockets fandom for different reasons. And look, like the Rockets have their legacies viewed the way they do. If Chris Paul doesn't get hurt a couple years ago, maybe their legacies are totally different. So I understand how couple things here, a couple things there. We could be having a totally different discussion. I will say, I still don't understand the Al Horford thing, doubling up on the bigs like that. Like, you need perimeter defense these days, period. Um, and you need a guy who can guard Giannis. And I don't think doubling up with Embiid and Horford would be the way, you know, to, to contain Giannis, who's probably the premier threat in the conference. Um, and then second to that, to your point, I think the team could work out. But for a team like that to work out, like, it always felt like that team – like they were plugging and playing on the fly, hoping it would work, you know, making a big trade, making a big acquisition here and there and plugging these pieces in that, uh, you know, people on the outside were kind of like, I'm not sure how that fits. Let's see. And it never worked. And in order for that to work, I think you have to be bought in, right? The team has to be bought in on all on the same page, all on the same philosophy. And I think that's one of their bigger issues was there's visible discord, you know, like Embiid is very, he kind of wears his emotions on his sleeve. You can tell what's going on. Um, you see Brett Brown, kind of imploring Ben Simmons to shoot threes using the media. So like there's an obvious implication there that, you know, coach isn't getting through a player. And so I just think like all those things kind of turned into one. And like you said, just everything worked out as poorly as possible. Would you, you agree with that, Zach? Yeah, hundred percent. I just think they put their eggs in the wrong baskets, focusing on the wrong talent. I mean, they went all in on talent versus building a game plan around Embiid and Simmons in a play style that fit. Uh, more than anything, and that's why a team that isn't as talented, like the Bucks, for instance, I mean, are way more successful with strength the numbers. I mean, because they found players to fit one guy specifically, and the system that they're trying to run, and it's two different ways of building a team and a core, and it works out, even though Middleton, some may say he has a bad contract, like Tobias, he fits Giannis like a glove and so therefore and it helps to have a top three top five coach um, I think when you get into the top five coaches that's when the difference comes in and I predicted Milwaukee ascending as soon as they got Mike Boonholz I've always believed in him and just what he did in Atlanta so I think that's the big difference is you're talking about a top five coach that knows how to do everything a, a coach is supposed to do on 
top level versus a coach 10-15 that has a lot of flaws. One more time, rest rest in peace, Brett Brown. And with that said, I mean, any closing words, Seth? I know I've kept you around a long time. Enjoyed the conversation. Any last uh, closing words? I just have I've, I've really enjoyed these playoffs and, uh, and and hope we get to hope the second round, especially in the East, is as is as uh, as good as it looks like it could be with with two very interesting series. Um, yeah, just kind of hope hope that continues and we can continue to uh, really just get some good basketball. Cool, man. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Uh, I'm just happy. We, I'm just happy we have something to do, something to watch, because for a while. You know, it was pretty boring there. But Seth, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate your time. Hope to speak with you again. Once again, Spruce, Noble. All right, guys, thank you.